Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Mick Wall and Joel McIver present Dead Rock Stars. Welcome back to episode three of Dead Rock Stars. If you want to hear about bringing opera to the masses, when Mr. Mercury met Mr. Ferocious, conquering Live Aid and how to get banned from San Antonio, Texas, stay right where you are. But first, I'd like Joel to introduce you to the great Mick Wall. A man who puts the rock in rocketry... The the wall in... Okay, uh, stop, yeah, stop, yeah, stop, yeah. stop, stop. I can always tell when you've written this stuff the night before and when you haven't. And <laughs> frankly, they're kind of neck and neck in terms of absolutely appalling and I, useless. I'm really made for radio intros, aren't I? You, you really are, yes. Now, look, everyone, thank you so much for listening in. We really appreciate it. My name is Joel McIver. I'm the author of several books on rock music and a million words or so in the form of rock journalism. And my colleague Mick Wall has done all that and about three times more. And today we're talking about someone who's crossed all our paths, basically. But uh, in particular, Mick got to know as a member of Queen. And of course, we're talking about the late, great Freddie Mercury, are we not? We certainly are. Now, uh, you, you knew the great man, right? Well, knew the great man. I don't know how well anybody really knew Freddie. Right. I mean, difficult to get to know or difficult? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, because he had such a persona. Right. You know, it's like saying, did you really get to know Mick Jagger? Did I got you it. really get to know the Queen? You yeah, know? yeah. Oh. Hey. Hey. Fantastic. Yeah, I um, did I wrote that one out. No, uh, <laughs> no, no, because Freddie was continually in performance. Yeah. So I met him on a few occasions. The first time Tell me about those. The reason why people tune into this podcast, as I say, every week <laughs> they want to hear what it's like, what it's really like to brush up close to these people. And I'm, you know, assuming you did that with Freddie. When you say brush up close... I mean precisely that. Okay, all right. What was Freddie really like? uh, I don't know what Freddie was really like. I don't even know if Freddie knew what Freddie was really like. A complex individual. Yes. Mm. As someone once said, you know, he's an interesting bunch of guys. You know, he he was different people every day of the the week. In a Bowie kind of way? No. draw a parallel? No. I'd say he was much more hysterical than Bowie. I mean, Bowie took what he did very seriously and could have a right old laugh... (laughs) <laughs> but Freddie, I think, was several rainbows over the hill. Freddie had been in reinventing himself since he was a child. You know, he was born in India. His real name was Frederick Balsara. He had these very prominent sort of horsey-type teeth. Mm, mm. He had uh, what these days you would call, I guess, a fluid sexuality. Mm. But back then, you would call questionable or, you know... Uh, what's Controversial going- back then, really, wasn't it? Illegal, in fact, when he was growing up. So 
when I first met him was 77, 78. Yeah. And at this point, I don't think he had fully come out to the public anyway. Yes. Mm. Although he was dropping hints. I was looking back through some stuff I did prior to this coming on today. Yeah. And he talks about, in this interview, I'll fuck anything. Mm. You know, I'm one of these guys who lives for the day. I live for pleasure, my dear. God. When I have money, I like to spend it, not just some of it, all of it. And I took I'll fuck anything as I am attracted to every form of female person in the world. Yeah. I didn't realise he literally meant he would fuck anything. Yeah. This is a guy who lived in the realm of the senses, you know. But what's interesting to me is that within two minutes of starting to talk about Freddie Mercury, we're talking about his sexuality. Yes. It was, it was such a huge part of who he was. Yes. Although, as you've said, until his later career, it wasn't overt. You know, people just assumed he was this sort of camp funny, effeminate's the wrong word, but certainly extrovert. Pansexual was probably a good word. It really informed his persona, didn't it? But from what you're saying... That was who he was, really. It wasn't just a stage act. That, that it was wasn't was. just a stage act, but I think he had already finessed it yeah. into an act that he just put on in front of everybody he met. Context is really important here. You have to remember in the early 70s when Freddie and Queen first yep. got a record deal and began working, we're in the era of, um, ooh, you are awful. Oh, I know, all that bollocks. You know, we're in yeah. the era of Larry Grayson. Yeah. Ooh, shut that door. You know, we're in the era of... Um, Danny LaRue. Mm, We're in the the era of you might not necessarily be gay. You might be Benny Hill. You might be someone who likes dressing up in costumes, women's clothing. It doesn't mean you're gay. It just means, ooh, you are awful. People were scared of it. It was alien, wasn't it, to a lot of people? Well, it still is, if we're honest, isn't it? I mean, there are still lots Mm, of of people. Not as many now as, as back then. Yeah. I'm sorry to butt in, Mick, but Freddie was really pioneering something here, I think, right? There had been glam rockers before him. Yeah, I mean, Bolan, Bo- Bowie. Bowie had famously come out with his I'm bisexual yeah. statement yeah. just before he became mega famous. And that more or less followed him to the grave. Yeah. That's how outrageous that appeared in 1971. Mm-hmm. Elton John, people forget, long before this controversy in the 80s, Elton was quite openly gay in yeah. the 70s. Yeah. You know, it, it wasn't just Bowie and Elton and Bolan. You know, you'd look at Slade dressed up in makeup yeah. and sparkle and yeah. the sweet. The sweet, yeah. I mean, labourers dressed up as drag queens. Yes, yeah. So it wasn't a case of, are you gay? It was more a case of, we're all having fun and playing dress up and. Got it. But of course, the band were called Queen. Yeah. (laughs) And he was this sort of ravishing queen at a time when it wasn't considered offensive to call a gay man a queen. Yeah. It sort of didn't just explain their sexuality, it explained their charm, it explained their. Got it. Their whole, you know, persona. Their artistic direction. Yeah, you know, you know. So if you met him in the late 70s, they mm. were already several albums in. Oh, yeah. And were absolutely in their pomp and yes. at their peak. And yes. what we mustn't forget is that they were one hell of a rock band. I mean, they were incredible musicians, incredible songwriters and composers and performers as well. And we mentioned The Sweet earlier. You know, there was no sort of comedy glamour crap about them. This was a real band with a real mission and a huge sound. I saw them for the first time on the Sheer Heart Attack tour. Yeah. And they were still doing tracks from the first two albums. And it was very much kind of Led Zeppelin with a bit of Bowie thrown in. Brian May, you know, and Roger Taylor were born to rock. It's as simple as that. But John Deacon was the quiet one. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was that stereotypical quiet one bass bassist. Back, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, one of the great things about Queen was that they all wrote hits. I mean, yeah. the only other band I can think of like Queen yeah. are the Beatles in terms of every single one of them yeah. sang 
on some of their biggest uh, songs. Every single one of them wrote hits. Yeah. Roger Taylor wrote Radio Gaga. John Deacon wrote another one, Bites the Dust. Mm-hmm. Freddie, of course, wrote, you know, Bo Rap. Yeah. And Brian wrote uh, tons of others yeah. that were huge hits. Yeah. And they all sang. In our previous episode, we talked about Ronnie James Dio, and you you record a man with great drive and great sort of... Um, he was on a mission, wasn't he, to establish himself. Did Freddie have the same sort of impetus? Was he out there to establish the Mercury name on the world? Or was he not quite as driven as that, as you know? No, no, he was incredibly driven. He was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I talked about when Ronnie walked in the room, he filled the room. Yeah. Freddie filled the building. <laughs> you know, you could hear Freddie coming from... 10 miles away, yeah. you felt the eminence and the vibe and everything turned into an instant party. I mean, he was just wonderful company, yeah. but it was all about Freddie. To the point where by the time I first met him, which was the News of the World album, yeah. there was a big party and I did a little interview. Uh, the party was outrageous. I mean, people forget or people don't understand because they're too young. The music business in the mid to late 70s, particularly for a band like Queen, was all about sex and drugs and rock and roll, with rock and roll very much coming a poor third. And Freddie was the ringmaster. Freddie was your mine host, mine genial, outrageously attired and spoken host. So they were just tremendous fun. Money was no object. And that's how Freddie lived. I met him a few years later... And he was talking about the difficulty he was having because every time they do a world tour, he comes back with trunks and trunks and trunks of artefacts <laughs> from all over the world. Yeah. He was that guy that, you know, in a previous uh, life came back with elephants laden with ivory yeah. and gold from his latest explorations. Yeah. Yeah. The impression I got was that's how he lived his life. I mean, it's easy in retrospect to say something like this, so I apologise. But at the time, long before the word AIDS was part of the conversation, yeah. he really did appear to be one of these guys who lived every day as though it was his last. A, a life that we would all like to lead. Part of us would all like to lead, I think. Well, I think so. But at the mm. same time, you know, that doesn't mean he was tremendously happy. Well, that's what fascinates me and I think a lot of people about these characters. Freddie, from what you've just said, appeared to have every advantage and, and sort of happy outcome in life that a rock star should have. So why would that not make you happy? That's what fascinates me. Well, you've got to ask why somebody wants to become a rock star in the first place. Right. What do they need? What is that need? What is that space inside that they want to fill by putting themselves on a stage open to ridicule, but ultimately, should they succeed, greater claim, greater and greater acclaim, more reward, more reward even than that. It's endless, but it never actually fills that void. And... What I noticed with Freddie was when I uh, first had any uh, dealings with Queen, he was still just about part of the gang. Mm. Cut to just a couple of years later, and there was Freddie, and then there were the other guys. Mm. Now, okay, at this point, they're wealthy enough and successful enough to all live on their own part of the hotel and have yeah. their own personal manager and entourage so on. and so on. But Freddie was different partly through his sexuality, which he was exploring, partly because, you know, we have to remember the late 70s, the early 80s, we're still talking about that Studio 54 sensibility. This is truly the age of of Rome. You know, this is truly the age before 
the whole disaster Before, yeah. of the 80s comes yeah. in. And not just in a sexual sense, but Reagan, Thatcher, yeah. the whole kind of pushback against the libertarian kind of values yeah. that had sprung up in the 60s and absolutely blossomed to the point of becoming almost a rotting rose by the end of the 70s. Yeah. So Freddie was totally exploring that. And, yeah. and, and he was completely outraged. A friend of mine in America told me, I was in Texas in 1981, and uh, one of the local promoter guys said to me, well, we were in San Antonio, yeah. you know, where everybody bears arms. You yeah. Know? Yeah. He said, you know, Queen can't play here anymore. I said, why is that? He said, because the last time they came here, Freddie came out on stage with a bottle of champagne, sprayed it all over the front row, and went, you are all c***s, my dears. <laughs> and you're going... Say what, boy? I'm going to shoot your ass. You limey asshole. And you're a faggot. <laughs> you know, I mean, he said they just, they'll never play here again. You know, I don't know if they did, but yeah. Freddie truly did not care. For him, it was yeah. fun. He was, he was making fun of the Cowboys. Yeah. And uh, did this sit well with the rest of the band always? No, mm. no. But as with all bands, they tended not to blame Freddie, but the people around of him. Of course, yeah. It yeah. wasn't Freddie... It was all these leeches and hangers-on. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. There's one chap in particular who I don't want to get into, but mm -hmm. the band have made clear that they saw as absolutely a very, very bad influence on Freddie in those days. And, and he okay. was mm. de facto Freddie's personal roadie manager sure. on the on Fluffer. Tour. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I see that. All right, okay. Did Queen... Pursue the right direction, do you think, commercially? Did Freddie do the right thing when he did his solo stuff and they went on to do Flash and they went on to do the, uh, the sort of later material that was really quite different from the early stuff? Did they follow a logical course, do you think? No, yeah. but then that's what makes them brilliant. It does. I mean, that's why we're still talking about them, but people aren't still talking so much about, say, Deep Purple. Right. I don't mm. mean to pick on Deep Purple, love Deep Purple, but yep. here's a band that continued to plough the same furrow. Yeah to the present day, to ever-diminishing returns, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Because once you've got a couple of their albums, you can check out. You really don't need any more. Mm, mm. Queen, like the Beatles, and, and like most of the extraordinary rock bands of the era, never saw what they did as, say, heavy metal or yeah. hard rock. Yeah. So they could do You're My Best Friend. Yeah. They could do something completely gothic and over-the-top like yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. They could do Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which Freddie wrote famously in the bath in five minutes, based on an Elvis impersonation he used to do. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, if you listen to Crazy Little Thing Called Love and think of Elvis, yeah. you're going to... Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're listening to Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Do you recall their performance at Live Aid in 85? I actually was at the American Live Aid. In so Philadelphia. I, yes. However, of course, you know, everybody now, it's probably the the defining moment of the whole Live Aid extravaganza. More than that, I mean, of, of rock in the 80s, according to a fair few learned observers. I remember it vividly. It was the first time I, um, I was allowed to stay up all night. I was 14, and we watched the whole thing. And I remember watching Queen and listening back to live tapes over and over again. And I, I remember it being this scintillating performance. Subsequently, it has been repainted as not only Queen's Finest Hour, but also the moment when rock went corporate, which I always thought was interesting. Live Aid itself is supposed to be the rise of Dire Straits, Phil Collins, yeah. and the moment when rock became elevated to this kind of superstar buddy status, you know, with Sting and Clapton and the rest of them slapping each other on the backs. You know, you're, you're a man of great perspicacity and wit. Does this resonate with you? Were Queen part of that set? 
did it have that cultural impact? I think uh, Queen get lumped in. They do. Because unless you saw Queen live and saw Freddie in his pomp, it really is hard to understand quite what control he had particularly in those days where any stage effects in those days were like pantomime. It was yep. all ropes and ladders and blokes holding lights. Yep. You know, These days we live in virtual reality land. Yep. It's a completely different universe. Mm-hmm. So you had to be a great performer. You had to be brilliant on any stage, big or small. And Freddie and Queen, if you look at the footage, Freddie had that entire 100,000-strong Wembley Stadium crowd in the palm of his hand. He really did. He really really did. did. In a way, no one else did that day. Certainly Mm. not David Bowie or Mm. anybody else that uh, is... I mean, you two tried very hard. Mm. They did well. They did well, but they didn't own it. I will say the opening bars of Rockin' All Over the World by Quo were a moment to treasure, no matter what you think of Quo. The moment when that started. I I love my Quo, by the way. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the way they took control of the gig from the moment was just astounding. But Queen came along and topped all that, I think. No, they uh, they really did, and and they'd clearly mm. thought it out. By contrast, you've got Adamant coming on trying to play his new single, who clearly sees this as a sort of another promotional gig like any other. And Queen, whose own career at this point, commercially speaking, was on the way. Yes. You're talking about managing decline at this point. Yeah. They come on, and then they almost didn't get invited because they weren't cool enough at that point. (sighs) Is that right? Absolutely. But they come on, and Freddie... You know, this is meat and drink to Freddie, the yeah. bigger the stage. And this is what he was like in person. Yeah, Freddie would love to talk to you, but he'd much prefer it if there were a hundred of you sitting there <sighs> and he could talk to you all at once, darling. You See, know. this I, I want to be clear about this. My default reaction when I hear what you've just said is to think, oh, that person must have been a pain in the ass to be around. That's not what Freddie was like, right? He was a good guy oh, to be around. Oh, I'm sure he could be a dreadful pain to be around. But, but to you, because the point of this is to, is to explore the experiences that we personally Oh, no, he was people. wonderful to me. But I always felt that as soon as I beamed out of the room and the next person yeah, beamed okay, in, yeah. the same performance would just simply continue. Well, most people are like that with you, Mick, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, OK, so and a genuinely nice guy. Obviously unique, I think. Is it, is it fair yeah. to say he was unique? Oh, no, completely. I mean, well, if people don't underestimate that amazing no. talent. He was a fantastic singer, yeah. great piano player. He was a born musician mm-hmm. who wore it very lightly. Mm. And his demons, insofar as he had demons, were not utterly destructive ones in the way that we've seen people have, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, had Freddie been born ten years earlier... Mm. Or ten years later, he might have escaped his fate. Right. And, of course, there was this dreadful temptation at the time to say, well, not just with Freddie, but anybody that suffered that dreadful disease in those early days of that disease, to say, well, they brought it on themselves. If only he hadn't frequented certain nightclubs or led a certain lifestyle, to which I say bullshit. You know, you can only live in the time you were born in. Yep. Loads of people led a very similar lifestyle to Freddie. Loads of people did before and still do and always will. But did they write Bohemian Rhapsody? Did they write Killer Queen? I mean, I love that she loves Moe Chandon (laughs) in The Pretty Cabinet. It's funny, my uh, my teenage daughter at her school, they use Killer Queen, what, 40 years after its composition, as a benchmark composition in their music studies. Do they really? Because the way the song moves is unusual. It kind of moves around in an unusual way. Right with incredible complexity when it comes to the backing vocals and all that stuff, and the way the sections of the song are bolted together, and Freddie just soars over yeah. it. It's yeah. not even my favourite Queen song, but it's a song that you admire in this kind of technical way. You think, bloody hell. I mean, the feel that those guys had to put that together. And it's quite sparse, actually. There's not much to it. 
Piano Murdy and the Vocal Murdy in, in Counterpoint. Right, right. Um, it's great to me that all these years, or decades later, it's still being held up as a sort of benchmark composition. Uh, and also, no auto-tune. We're talking a piece of tape. I yeah. mean, famously with Bohemian Rhapsody, they nearly wore the tape out. You could see daylight through yeah. it when they'd finished. You know, <laughs> These were guys yeah. playing in a room. Yeah. They were a real band. And I've got to say, I hate to name drop. Love to name drop. Robert Plant and Clang. I. Clang. Well, Robert Plant and I were hanging out. You yeah, know. I listened to you. And um, Queen came up and he the face he pulled, it was like, you know, oh, look, I've just stepped in a dog turd. Would you like to have mm. some too? You know, mm. I said, you don't like Queen. I felt like one of the, hey, man, you don't like the priest. <laughs> What's wrong with Maiden, man? What are you saying? You know, yeah, I, I yeah. went, you don't like Queen? Yeah. And he went, God, no. They were, just, it, I mean, I forget his actual words, but it was like, of course not. They were completely pretentious, false pop rubbish. And I remember thinking, dude, if you yeah. ever write a lyric like Killer Queen, come back to me. But pretentious, if you say Queen are pretentious, it's missing the point. It's like saying the sun is warm, you know. That was, that was the point. They're completely ostentatious and over well, the top. Well, we yeah. were all in on the joke. That was the well, point. Well, is Mozart pretentious? Right, you know, I Wagner, mean, I don't know. Anything that's massively kind of, it, the, the parameters are large. Oh, right? did, were the Beatles pretentious when they stopped singing I Want to yeah, Hold exactly. Your Hand and started singing about taking acid and, yeah. and shagging walruses? I mean, you've got, Planty's allowed his point of view. You know, he came from the sort of folk background didn't he I mean I, I suppose Freddie came from the classical world right but I think the interesting point is is that there's a certain generation that for them Queen was inauthentic yeah Queen was artifice Queen was style over substance and I truly believe that's bollocks because yes of course they appropriated styles you said earlier on did they make a wrong move yeah I think they made several in inverted commas wrong moves mm, mm, mm. but then look at all the music they came up with that resulted from those wrong moves yeah. one of the two big moments that effectively killed their career in America were number one when Freddie grew the tash yeah. cut his hair short yeah and they did the Hot Space album. Right. So I want to break free. Well, then I want to break free. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. according to legend, and Brian May told me this once as well, as soon as that video where they're all... In drag, yeah. But cartoon drag. Oh, it's brilliant. I love that uh, video. It's funny. What, Americans found it too hard to take? Or the networks? The, the, well, they, MTV just ceased playing the video. People, oh, people at the record company God. stopped working on it in middle America and the deep south. And don't forget, Benny Hill was huge in America. Yeah. Benny Hill was huge in America, but there's a reason why U2 became huge in America <laughs> and the Smiths didn't. Yeah. The reason is U2 are very cathartic and sincere and Bono on one knee with the wind blowing yeah. in his head. That's American rock. There's no arch humour in it. No, Morrissey comes along with a daffodil hanging out of his arse right. and, you know, yeah, yeah. scratching his nipple. It's a gender thing. Freddie looked fantastic. Did he not have a giant pair of fake boobs attached? And he was mincing yes, it up absolutely, absolutely beautifully. Of course he did. You know. I mean, oh, you didn't kind of go, oh, she's gorgeous. You went, oh, look at Freddie. He's not, <laughs> it's not like he's trying hard to look gorgeous. I think it caused a bit of confusion in a few people's minds. You know, That is essentially a really hot woman with big teeth and a giant moustache. Yeah, so well, I think that says a little, us, right? a little more about you there, it, Joel, it probably than, does. than it does I'm, about I'm, Freddie. I'm, you know, I'm surprised yeah, yeah, yeah. you two never you know, hooked up. <laughs> I would love to have sat down and talked to him like you did, I have to say. I envy you that. Yeah, well, thank you. But mm. it wasn't just him. Yeah. The other guys in Queen, you know, we mustn't forget that they gave him the space for him to grow Absolutely. into. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they were all great characters in their own right. Mm. I remember going to Roger Taylor's, not because I was invited, I was hanging out with a another rock star, and we got invited to Roger Taylor's house. Mm -hmm. Not his house, his penthouse in London. He's got many houses. I'm sure. Yeah. 
and he was saying to this guy, oh, and here's my home number, and here's my country home number, and <laughs> here's my stumm number. And, and <laughs> stumm number, he said, yeah, you know, that's the number you call me on that no one knows. Wow. And this guy went, great, and he had it on a bit of paper and just gave it to me because I had a jacket with pockets in. So I put it... <laughs> Next thing, shag carpet, white shag carpet up to your ankles, okay, mm, mm, with mm. gold and platinum records everywhere. This yeah. is just his pad in London. Yeah. He's got, you know, yeah. castles, probably. Mm, mm. And I kicked over a full glass of red wine. Onto the white carpet. Onto the shag pile. Yes. And his reaction? Oh, don't worry. You know, yeah. Marielle will <laughs> fix that in the morning after, you know. <laughs> and I just love that kind of insouciance. Yeah. And, of course, they paid the price for it. They became ridiculed, even, you know, to the point where someone like Robert Plant in this day and age would yeah. consider them, you know, beyond consideration, beyond yeah. the pale. But they were beautiful. They yeah. were so fantastic. Who, yeah. who is there now like Freddie Mercury? Will there ever be? I mean, I remember Classic Rock did a poll, I think, a few years ago. It was either the greatest rock voice or the greatest rock performer. Maybe they've done both. And Freddie, I think, topped one or, or both. Completely reasonably does the space exist for a Freddie Mercury now or are we just too self-aware and too kind of postmodern and too cynical? That road lies madness because we live in a completely different world. What yeah. they call the water cooler moment yes. doesn't exist anymore. You know, the, the idea that we all watch the same programmes and hear the same radio and, listen, and, and through Top of the Pops or something have a pretty fair idea of what's going on in the popular yeah. music world. Okay. That idea is as dead as 1999. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. gone. Mm -hmm. However, will we have more intriguing and wonderful characters like Freddie? I hope so. I mean, we live in a very, very diverse place now. It just won't have the same reverberation, the same cultural impact, the same kind of cultural shorthand. I asked Lars Ulrich about this. I said, will you ever make another Black Album? The answer took a long time, but in brief, what he said was, uh, we could write the same music, but there is no room now for a black album, an appetite for destruction, a back in black, a hotel California. You know, 20 million people don't buy an album now. And is that rather like what you're saying? Is that uh, along similar lines? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, we call this podcast uh, Dead Rock Stars. Yeah. We're also talking dead worlds, dead planets, we dead are. lives, dead past. But the thing is, the fact that it's still part of the conversation, the fact that we're still talking about Freddie Mercury, yeah. that idea never dies. No. You know, people no. get hung up on Spotify or delivery systems. Yeah. I have three children, all in their teens, who are as passionate about music as yeah. I ever was. Yeah. They just have no idea what an album is. Yeah. They just have no idea what a music magazine is. It's um, interesting, isn't it? Because although you and I didn't go and see Miles Davis in 1955 in New York, we know what it would have been like. Right. We have an idea because we've been in that situation right. later on. Whereas perhaps the kids that you're talking about in the, you know, the younger generation, they just don't get that. The communal feeling, the kind of experience, the pioneering moment. No, they don't. But they then can't. they have a different kind of communal they experience, do. don't they? They do. They do. You know, I mean, we must be very careful, Joel, before we expire, not to start talking about kids today. We'll all be dead rock stars one day. <laughs> so, because I tell you what, back in the 70s when Freddie and Queen first kind of burst onto the scene, as yeah. it were, there were plenty of parents kicking in the tellies and bemoaning the fate of kids today, liking that kind of perverted rubbish. Talking of kicking in the telly, is there not a seminal moment when uh, Freddie met Sid Vicious, right, in... Uh... <laughs> There is, there is. Tell us what happened. Well, the backdrop to this was a, a piece that NME did. Tony Stewart wrote the piece. 
and Tony Stewart, God bless him, you know, is is not known as a laugh a minute. Yeah. You know, not like you, Mick. Unlike myself, who brings joy to every situation. And he interviewed Freddie in like the summer of 76, 77, yeah. 77 maybe. And the headline was, is this man a prat? <laughs> and, you know, it's the enemy and it's heyday yeah. when it was actually worth reading. Yeah. Uh, but he'd gone in with the hatchet fully sharpened. And he'd actually got Freddie to the point where he was talking about wanting to bring through Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. So I'm sure if more pop kids listened to opera, they'd open up to it. Yeah. Cut to a couple of months later because... They're in the studio, and um, Sid Vicious. Maybe we'll do one on Sid one day, but we I met to. Sid we a few to. times. Yep. He was hilarious. Yeah. And he would quite often talk to you like that. <laughs> I remember stepping over him once, going into the speakeasy. <laughs> I stepped over Sid Vicious. You come down the stairs into the basement, I stepped over Sid, and he's lying next to Nancy Sponge, and he goes, I, I sell, boy. Could you buy me a drink? <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck off, Sid. <laughs> you bastard. You bastard, Sid. So anyway, Sid bursts in and he goes, Oi, Freddie, I hear you're bringing opera to the masses. <laughs> and Freddie's at the piano, you know, composing. You can imagine, like, we are the champions or something, you know. Dun, 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 dun. My life with you when I look back, you know. Sid comes in and he goes, Oi, Fred, I hear you're bringing opera to the masses. And Freddie looks up from the piano and goes, Ah, oh, Mr. Ferocious. Come sit with me at the keyboard. <laughs> and Sid's like, I'm far off, Fred. They were almost like polar opposites, were they not, of pop music? They were, but there's so many parallels. I mean, the reason the Pistols got on the Bill Grundy show was because Queen had cancelled. Right, right. Uh, and the reason Queen had cancelled was Freddie was probably too busy eating caviar from the navel of some young yeah. thing. Yeah. And then, of course, never mind the bollocks and News of the World, come out at virtually the same time. Mm, mm, and so you've got mm. Anarchy in the UK, Pretty Vacant, up against, on that album by Queen, We Are the Champions yeah. and We Will Rock You. Yeah. So there's this bizarre relationship between Freddie bringing opera to the masses and Mr Ferocious <sighs> being invited to leave it's the great. room. It's just great. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Dead Rock Stars podcast. I was thinking about The Darkness, funnily enough, and whatever you may think of that band. Um, Love The Darkness. Yeah, they bring their Queen uh, influences to the fore. They even used uh, Roy Thomas Baker to yep. produce, didn't they? Yep. In fact, I was out with the bass player the other day and we were talking about Queen a little bit. And from his point of view, it was the whole attitude, the whole package of Queen. Because I'm a child of the 80s, when I think about Queen, I think about their 80s stuff. And I think about the album with their four faces kind of moulded together into one. And I also think about Freddie's death and the way that that was done. I don't want to say it was managed because I don't think it was managed. He announced his illness, did he not, the day before he died, I think. In the business, I can tell you it was well known that Mm. Freddie was ill ill and what he was ill from. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know why the tabloids... I mean, they did this horrible thing with him where they kept going, there'd be pictures of Freddie looking very emaciated, leaving his home in London. There'd be a headlight saying, what's up, Freddie? Not feeling well and all this kind of stuff. It's just appalling. Just appalling. So you can see why they didn't exactly want to spring that on the world. But what I thought was useful is the fact that he did at the end actually make that announcement at a time when people thought it was extraordinary if Princess Di held hands with somebody with HIV. Absolutely, right. And then, of course, the big payoff was that fantastic concert at Wembley, uh, which in many ways is Freddie's spiritual home after Live Aid, you know. I always remember the the last song they released, I think it was in his lifetime, was The Show Must Go On. Yeah. And uh, the story goes that... um, he had to sing each line individually because he was too tired to, to sing the song in one go. And it's the most incredible song. It sends shivers up my spine. And it's his last thing. It's the last track on the last album he recorded, right? And that came out. And when the concert happened in 92, some months after he had died, I remember very clearly watching this and, and thinking that the sadness about his death wasn't fake. It was real. It was widespread. People really believed it. It wasn't some token gesture. And whatever you might have thought about the bands on the bill and the stuff that they did with their songs, it was a real thing, wasn't it, in a way that perhaps would not have been the case 10 years later or now. I actually thought it was in many ways more real Mm. than Live Aid because Live Aid was so vast, so global, but at the same way, in a very kind of generic sense, we're feeding the poor, we're helping the starving. I'm not trying to denigrate that one bit, but that's a big idea. Yeah. The Freddie concert was clearly about Freddie and the performances that George Michael gave, Elton. Mm, it's astounding. And also, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, Axel Rose and Slash. I mean, Axel just three years before had got in a lot of hot water in the media for his song One in a Million, yep. where there's a line where he berates, quote, immigrants and faggots, yeah. unquote. Well, yeah. Freddie was arguably both. Yeah. But at the same time, he was one of Axel's all-time heroes. Axel brought Roy Thomas Baker in later to try and work on some of Chinese democracy. Oh, I didn't know that. In the days when I knew Axel, his all-time favourite artists were Elton John, Mm. Queen, Mm. ELO, 10CC. (laughs) And he'd been brought up playing the piano. Yeah. And he idolised Freddie. And it was interesting that he should then do this show, which isn't just for Freddie, but is about, if you like, AIDS awareness... 
helping people come to terms with the fact that this isn't some thing that only happens to them. Yeah. It belongs to all of us. Yeah. So I think it was an extraordinary concert and an extraordinary moment where whatever people's issues were, they got shunted to one side yeah. because Freddie Mercury was arguably, you know, as important in the history of pop and rock as... I was going to say the Beatles. That's probably raising the bar too high. Not but, far. Not, not too much further. Very high. close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Bowie and Elton, you know, yeah, absolutely one of the all-time greats. And was that the last such rock star death that really mattered, that really made an impact? I wouldn't go that far. See, I would. And I'll tell you why. And that's because Bowie lived a full life. He lived, right. he lived a full lifespan. Right. What was Freddie, 40 when he died? Like 45, that. I think. 45. What equivalent person had their career cut off that young in Britain in the last X decades? You know, it, it... Well, that's a fair question, a mm. good question. You may well be right. There wasn't a concert for Bowie at Wembley Stadium. No, there wasn't. Uh, no, listen, it's a good point. I think mm. it, it was a confluence, for sure, of events. Mm. Yeah. The manner of his death certainly had a huge bearing on it. But so many people you know, tragically died that way and, and continued to, yeah, yeah. you know, at the same time. I think you can't escape the fact that there was a question of diversity, yeah. a question of what these days we would talk about as, yeah. you know, a, a more uh, accepting yeah. normalisation of people's sexualities. There isn't just one, there isn't just two. Yeah. There's a universe and spectrum of yeah. not just sexuality, but people you can be, lives you can live, yeah. ideas you can extol we talked about them being pretentious we've now dived straight over the board here <laughs> but i think freddie and queen but queen as personified by freddie for sure because they could have been a truly remarkable rock band yeah but freddie turned them into something yeah. else uh, what you've just said about this being pretentious you know what we're doing here you and i is we're not just telling silly stories about people who've died we're talking about the bigger picture the impact that they made and how it changed everyone because these people did change us as professionals in the music industry. I'm thinking about Freddie's sexuality as a catalyst for change, and the example that we have in mind is that of Rob Halford of Judas Priest, who publicly and formally came out as a gay man in, I think, what, 92? A bit later, a bit later, yeah, maybe. 95? It was, sorry, like yeah. 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 Now, that actually engendered a bit of real visible change in the heavy metal scene. Although Freddie, I don't think, unless you know otherwise, ever declared his sexuality formally, it was known and that he was, I think, bisexual. Did this engender any kind of major change in people's minds? Did this change the way we looked at rock music? Did it change it the way the way we looked at people who are not straight in the rock scene? I think it had to help. It had to. Mm. Because, I mean, that concert at Wembley in 92, you know, when you have got Axl Rose up there who's who has defended his objection to homosexuality because of the abuse he allegedly suffered as a child. Yet there he is you know, singing his heart out in tribute to Freddie. Mm. I don't think Freddie ever formally came out, but Freddie was born out there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. When he changed his name to Mercury, he, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. He really was in a different place to most people. And Elton had been openly gay at that point for a while. Bowie, of course, had been, you know, openly bisexual for decades. Mm -hmm. George Michael at that point... I can't remember if George had, as it were, officially come out. I think that was late 90s, maybe. But I think at the same time, you know, what you've got on that stage is, for most people watching it on television or at the show, a pretty mainstream lineup, Yeah. celebrating a figure who clearly was much more than that. Yeah. 
And although it wasn't explicit, the fact that Freddie had died from AIDS, the fact that Freddie clearly wasn't just your regular straight, as it were, normal guy. Yeah, yeah. I think it really helped, hugely helped. I think it helped with an understanding of AIDS. Mm. But I think also in the rock and metal community, as it were, where Queen was still revered. You know, you've only got to see Metallica doing Stone Cold Crazy to see that, you know, that community still revered Queen, particularly their early albums. But the whole subject of homosexuality, where it was much more open in the 70s, by the time you get to the 90s and Freddie's death, it's back in the closet, particularly with rock and metal. That definitely, for me, helped it become part of the conversation again without fear of ridicule or shame. Right. And I think to the point where Rob Halford, who, unlike Queen, Judas Priest for much more mainstream metal act, felt comfortable enough. And Rob, by the way, was an enormous Queen fan. Yeah, right. Enormous Queen fan. The first time I met him in 78, he just played me back-to-back Queen in in the car. (laughs) But, you know, Freddie's life Mm -hmm. enabled him to come out and be who he really felt he wanted to be because the landscape had changed and it had become more normalised and less of a bizarre occurrence as someone who plays loud music might actually... Like a footballer coming out, you know. It certainly was a huge step in that direction. Yeah, it's not news anymore, and it it shouldn't be, frankly. And, you know, the reason we have... We talk about these people when we talk about who we're going to talk about on this podcast. We're talking about people who made a larger impact and a bigger... had a bigger presence than just that of musicians. So when we come to our traditional star ratings out of five, as we always do at the end of these podcasts, probably when it comes to influence, we can award Freddie a a high mark out of five, I'm saying. I'd give him five. Yeah, definitely. And what about excess? I want to give that mark. Well, I'm not the man who, uh, who witnessed what was going on backstage at Queen, so over to you on that one. Okay. If Freddie was here right now... Yeah. And we gave him anything less than five stars for excess. <laughs> I think he'd take his shoe off and bash us over the head with it. Yeah. So I would say that's five star plus. Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, that's what I want to hear, frankly. His legacy. Well, I guess we've talked about his legacy for the last 15 minutes, you know. I mean, it's you know, musically unparalleled. A real sort of socio-political impact when it comes to gender identity, gender politics. And a, a performer, you know, just, just the way he flung himself around the stage. You know, oh, he, was, he was absolutely, you will believe a man can fly. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was incredible. But I think also, if you look to the fact that the Queen greatest hits albums, one and two, are two of the biggest selling records yeah. of all time. Yeah. Yeah. means we're not just talking about a rock star or a pop star. We're talking about a star, full stop. You look at the success of the stage musical, We Will Rock You. You look at the success of even the tour they did with Paul Rogers, which was slightly more biased towards the rock end of Queen. Yeah. Or the tour they've just done in Adam America. Lambert. Absolutely. We, which is we, well received, actually. People seem to like Adam's take on, on that kind of extreme. Well, he, he's entirely plausible yeah. and believable in the role. And he's mm. very much true to the spirit because mm. he mm-hmm. himself is not your regular cookie cutter no. rock star. No. And now, of course, they're making a biopic of Freddie's life. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about someone who was now a historical figure, part, as you say, of exactly. the socio-cultural exactly. yeah. landscape. An icon? Oh, for sure. An icon. Freddie was born an icon. In fact, his second choice of name after Freddie Mercury was Freddie Icon. But, you know. Seriously? No. (laughs) Like Freddie Mercury, our next dead rock star was in a band that issued a self-titled debut album and a second, go on, Joel, simply labelled Two. Two. And whilst Freddie was famous for Flash... Flash! 
this guy was famous for Crash, Crash, Bang Wallop. And though both bands appeared at Live Aid, our next dead rock star wasn't there. He was not. There's a clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both men favoured big, bushy, macho moustaches, uh, except one of them would have killed you stone dead if you tried to compare him to Freddie Mercury. <sighs> I should point out at this point that both Mick and I have pretty decent moustaches. Not as big as the guys we're talking about, though. Take that as you will. If you enjoyed this, then please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share it on social media. If you must. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.